Culture Affidavit Episode 47, The Meatloaf Episode. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, your host, and this time around I'm going to go in a completely random different direction than what we've been doing the last few episodes, and I'm just going to talk about meatloaf. I've been saving this one for a while, um, thought about doing it probably a couple years ago when I was just, when I was first planning out actually my episodes for the better part of six months to a year, and then it kind of kind of got derailed by the 1994 year and stuff like that, but I've always wanted to do an episode about meatloaf, I love meatloaf, and uh, so that's, that's what I'm going to do. Before that, I'm going to take a quick break, and uh, hope you'll stick around for me talking about meatloaf. I have called you all here today at the behest of Don DiManzo to discuss the expansion of our Jersey territory. Our Don has seen an opportunity to move into Atlantic City at an event called AC Boardwalk Con, which will be happening May 14th through the 17th, 2015. Don DiManzo has asked that some of our made men attend this convention and convince the locals to try Two True Freaks. Joining me, Gene Hendricks, on this trip will be my Quantum Cast cohort, Jeff Fishman. Chris Tyler, the hair metal hero, will be representing the Boston arm of the family, while Scott McGregor will be representing the New York branch. Our capo, Chris Honeywell, will also be there to provide some added... persuasion. Your Don has asked that any of his loyal friends in the area come and pay their respects to this new endeavor. He reminds you that all the information on the event can be found at doacbc.com. That's doacbc.com. Come help us make Atlantic City an offer they can't refuse. I was nothing but a lonely 
what exactly is meatloaf? I really don't think it needs much explanation. Um, it's in the dish's name. Uh, meatloaf is ground beef that is bound together and molded into the shape of a loaf and then baked in an oven. Um, it has been a staple of the American dinner table for decades, probably even a century. And what I wanted to do is get into a little bit of the history of it, talk about the preparation of it, and what you do with some of the leftovers. The history is actually, it's kind of an interesting question to ask because it is something that has just kind of, well, been taken for granted on our dinner table for, for a very, very long time. And I thought a really, really good question would be to ask, okay, where does meatloaf come from? So I did a little bit of research on this, and I went to the universal source of information for anything, which is Wikipedia. The most interesting thing on the Wikipedia page actually is a section in the photo gallery of variations of the dish throughout the world. Here are some examples. In Austria, it's called Feischertebraten. Uh, most of the time it's not filled, but it is wrapped in ham before baking it. It's often served with mashed potatoes when warm or sauce cumberland when cold. In Bulgaria, it is rulo stefani, is uh, similar to the to the Hungarian stefania meatloaf with hard-boiled eggs in the middle. Chilean meatloaf, also known as asado aleman or German roasted meat, is a staple of southern Chile cuisine, especially in areas known for having been influenced by the arrival of German settlers during the 18th and 19th century. The most common recipe nowadays consists of ground beef, carrots, sausages, boiled eggs, and breadcrumbs cooked on the oven and normally served with a side dish of mashed potatoes or rice. Cuban meatloaf is called pulpetta, and I apologize if I'm butchering some of these uh, foreign language <laughs> words. I, I am, am, am not the best at that. Uh, it's made with ground beef and ground ham. It has is stuffed with hard-boiled eggs and is cooked on a stovetop. The dish was actually brought to public attention, mistakenly referred to as a sausage for the second episode of the third season of The Cosby Show that was entitled Food for Thought. Danish meatloaf is called forlorn hare or mock hare or fazbrud ground meat bread and is usually made from a mixture of ground pork and beef with strips of bacon or cubed bacon on top. It is served with boiled or mashed potatoes and brown sauce sweetened with red currant jelly. Germany meatloaf is referred to as hackbraten, frescherterbraten, or falscher hasse macher in some regions it often has boiled eggs inside. Kafka or kofta in the greater Middle East is a similar dish which the mixture can be made into hamburgers and kebabs. It usually has parsley in it. In Greece, meatloaf is often referred to as a rollo and is usually filled with hard-boiled eggs, although several other variations exist. In Italy, meatloaf is called polpitone and can be filled with eggs or ham or and cheese. In Jewish cuisine, meatloaf is called klops and can be served cold or hot. It is sometimes filled with whole-boiled eggs. The source of the word might be German, klops meaning meatball. Kafta, or kofta in Palestine and Lebanon, is a Middle Eastern version of meatloaf. It is usually beef or lamb mixed with onions, parsley, and various spices flattened into a square loaf and covered in either tomato sauce or tahini sauce. It is baked with the sauces and enjoyed with rice and potatoes, usually baked with the kafta. Kafta or kofta is usually turned into kebabs and grilled during the summer months. Mongolia, kuchmal, is served with mashed potatoes cooked over ground meat. One of South Africa's most popular dishes is a form of meatloaf called bobotai. 
Food in South Africa varies by region, and Bobotai is considered a Cape Town or Western Cape dish, but is so popular throughout the country that it is sometimes considered one of South Africa's signature dishes. It is slightly sweet meatloaf flavored with curry spices, dried apricots, and almonds, and is topped with whipped egg and milk topping, which when baked on top of the meat filling creates an egg topping. It arrived in South Africa several hundred years ago from the East Indies and became one of the signature dishes of Cape Town's Cape Melee community. Swedish meatloaf is called Kotfarsimpla. There's umlauts involved here. Um, and is usually made from a mixture of ground pork and beef. It is served with boiled mashed potatoes or mashed potatoes, brown sauce, and lingonberry jam. The Vietnamese meatloaf version is called Gio. It is boiled rather than baked or smoked. There are many versions of Gio that differ by materials used. Now, the Wikipedia page does have some history of the dish, in addition to all this kind of international version information, but I actually did a little bit of further research and found that an article from uh, The Atlantic from September 20th, 2011, that was titled From Budget Fair to Culinary Cuisine, The History of Meatloaf. While the dish we currently call meatloaf first appeared around the turn of the 20th century and gained popularity in the Depression and the Second World War, it has its origins as far back as ancient Rome, as Apicius, in his cookbook De Reculinaria Conquinaria, has a dish that had chopped meat combined with spices, soaked bread, and pine nuts formed into a patty. The article then goes on to mention other ancestors of meatloaf, which include a medieval European dish called a pastet, which were the leftover scraps of meat combined with a host of seasoning, fruit, and nuts, and molded into a patty as well. Even the the court of Louis XIV in 17th century France had loaves of meat that were served with gelatin. In America, meatloaf actually has its ancestry in another dish named scrapple. Um, I was curious about this because scrapple, I do know, comes from, um, I believe, uh, I know it's Pennsylvania, and I believe it comes from like uh, Pennsylvania Dutch country. And I know a couple of people uh, from Pennsylvania, one of them being my roommate. Drew, who's from the Philadelphia area, but uh, the other person who is more readily available on Facebook and is more likely to um, answer the question, um, and that is Michael Bailey. And I asked Michael, you're from PA, are you familiar with Scrapple? And, and if so, uh, can you explain it? And he says, it's a meat it's a meat byproduct. In its raw form, it looks nasty, but when you fry it and get it really crispy on both sides with soft in the middle, it's quite good. So there you go. That's Scrapple. It's something I've seen on a menu, uh, but never actually tried, usually because I will, um, as I told him, very often I see it on a menu, but then I also see like sausage gravy and biscuits on a menu, and I tend to choose that for for various reasons, and he understands because he also lives in the South as well. So that's kind of the American um, origin of meatloaf, or like how it's evolved. But but our the modern concept of this whole kind of idea of grinding meat and then kind of putting it into a loaf and and what it is actually starts around 1899 when Carl Dries invented the meat grinder. Soon after, recipes started being published, and when the Depression hit. Meatloaf became a cheap dinner that could help those on a budget. According to the article, the filler that went into most into the meat for meatloaf 
vary quite a bit. But during the Depression, and then of course during the war, when you when um, things like meat were kind of in short supply, remember a lot of people just didn't have simply didn't have the money during the Depression, and honestly during the war a lot of things were rationed. So um, my grandparents' generation you know, a lot of our grandparents' generation really did have to struggle to kind of make ends meet and, and meatloaf was a good good way to do that to stretch a budget. So what they could do is they could buy cheap, tough cuts of meat and then tenderizing them by grinding them. And then fill in and buying the meatloaf with every day with everything from bread, crackers, oats, tapioca, breakfast cereal uh, in the war, the variations actually got pretty interesting. Here's what the article uh, has to say. In the increased strictures of wartime rationing in the 40s, Meatloaf consolidated its high-ranking position in the housewife's culinary artillery. Here, Meatloaf took on a new symbolic significance. By maintaining the health and the strength of a country at war, it played its role in the front lines. Penny Prudence's, quote, vitality loaf was jammed with beak pork, pork liver, oatmeal, wheat germ, onion, evaporated milk, egg, and chili sauce. The most economical options of the era, however, even deviated from the aforementioned ingredients. They didn't actually feature meat at all. Capitalizing on the familiar shape and the texture of the dish to appeal to the American palate, cookbooks with titles such as Cooking on a Ration were filled with recipes that used beans, nuts, rice, and soy flour in place of meat. Now, okay, so you have this dish that in the 30s and 40s when people cooked out of necessity and and you know and, and got creative with their cooking out of necessity as opposed to luxury was very popular because of its practicality you'd think in the 50s and the 60s especially during the eisenhower era when when we have this at least this nostalgic view of the 50s and 60s being the kind of this era of prosperity that you wouldn't need it um because the war was over people were um you know People were being able to afford their own homes, and in were were had had this leisure time that did not exist um, as much during during the pre-war years. Well, meatloaf's popularity did not decline. Surprisingly, in fact, as the 1950s saw this sort of celebration of a housewife in a sense uh, the recipe for meatloaf saw itself get more sophisticated and even gourmet which what basically happened to the classic dish became it became more versatile and you had all sorts of mixtures of meats as well as more diverse and expensive array of spices filling sauces and toppings and granted in the last 20 years there has been this tendency to try and dress up meatloaf in restaurants with more expensive variations it's well, I've actually had it at a couple of restaurants uh, in and around here in Charlottesville, and it can be hit or miss. Um, there's one at a diner here. The, there's like a meatloaf sandwich at the diner, which they do with like barbecue sauce, which is nah. But then there's like a, a meatloaf that they serve at this really great restaurant called Bizu, which which is really really worth the money, um, believe it or not. So, and and it's kind of I compare it to a lot of these gourmet burger places that have that have sprung up um in recent years where you're paying you know like um 10 to 20 dollars for a hamburger because the meat is quality meat and there's you know all sorts of toppings and those can be hit or miss as well there are some places that i love the burgers like that and some places like well you're you're i'm paying a little too much for this burger because i could probably make this burger at home um and look 
I'm not going to get all get off my lawn about foodie meatloaf and stuff, but I will say I do tend to be a purist. I think that meatloaf needs to be produced on the cheap, or not necessarily on the cheap, but you know, it's a budget food. It's an everyday food. It's a family food. It, it doesn't need to be a $20 plate. So, because um, it's comforting. And while expensive ingredients can definitely taste good, something about, there's just something just great about simply grabbing some ground beef out of the supermarket, going through your pantry, and just going to town. And it's funny, my father makes a really, really good meatloaf. And it's kind of like, it's it's like one of my favorite things ever to eat. My mother-in-law makes an amazing meatloaf. And nobody particularly, like my sister messaged me on Facebook one time. She's like, Dad, give me the meatloaf recipe. And I'm like, okay. But here's the thing. I remember um, I remember one of the first times he ever made meatloaf. And because I was there, I was helping him. I was probably, I was probably about Brett's age, seven or eight years old. And I remember what he used for the first time with his very first meatloaf recipe, which was the Betty Crocker cookbook, which I have. Now, I don't have the edition that my parents had when I was eight years old. This is you know, 30 years ago. But I do have one that my that Amanda and I got when, uh, you know, when we moved in together and, and started living together. Which I think that, um, you know, if you're going to, you're going to talk about cooking and you're going to talk about certain texts that you have to have when you're just basically building kind of a home library of, of cookbooks and, and things like that. And, and I'm looking at the shelf, my huge bookcase of graphic novels and, and trade paperbacks is next to, you know, a, a bookcase, the bottom half of which is all my wife's cookbooks. Um, and we have, we have a ton, we have everything from, uh, from ad hoc at home and, and Thomas Keller stuff to several years of cooking lights, um, annual recipes to some stuff by John Besh and, and, and Jamie Oliver and Nigella Lawson and, and, you know, and celebrity chefs and things and Ina Garten, um, which we kind of bust out for special occasions, but in the, in the hutch by the, by the dining room table or the kitchen, uh, we have two books that I think are really, um, could be essential books to any kitchen. One of them is Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything, the New York, Mark Bittman being the New York Times, uh, food writer. And the other one is the Betty Crocker cookbook. And we also have the kids one because I got it for Brett because he, he likes to do stuff like make cookies and stuff. So like my dad used that as a base and then he modified the recipe over the years. And it's basically what I, I decided to do. Um, because there aren't a ton of recipes that are in my family that are handed down. My grandmother's macaroni salad recipe, I have. My other grandmother made homemade ravioli, but I, I got a whole recipe for my own making my own pasta. I have a pasta roller set that's attached to the kitchen made, so I figured out how to make my own ravioli. I'm like, well, I'm going to figure out how to make meatloaf. So I've started with the Betty Crocker recipe and modified it a little bit here and there, and I think that's basically what you do to make a meatloaf. Now, this is what Betty Crocker has. Pound and a half of lean ground beef. Now, some people will just use straight up beef. Some people will get some some veal, some pork, some turkey. It really is up to you what you prefer. Um, when I'm making this, I am trying to not overdo it in terms of the budget. Ground beef can be expensive too, but I do tend to use a, a, a lean ground beef. I try not to go too lean. You do want a little bit of fat in there, but you don't want like the really, really fatty beef where you're getting the sort of little fat capsules. So there's that sort of balance between like you know they've stripped everything away and it's way too fatty uh, so a pound and a half of that I tend to go with two pounds because I want 
a bigger loaf because I want leftovers. A cup of milk, a tablespoon of Worcestershire sauce, a teaspoon of chopped fresh or a half teaspoon of dried sage leaves. I just go with the dried sage leaves because at least that's something you can put on a spice rack in the pantry and have it there forever. Buying the fresh ones, you gotta like, what am I gonna do? It's like buying parsley. What am I gonna do with the rest of this parsley? I had to use like one stalk of it for something. Half a teaspoon of salt, half a teaspoon of ground mustard, dry ground mustard. That's another thing you should just throw in your spice cabinet, a quarter teaspoon of pepper, a clove of garlic, or an eighth of a teaspoon of garlic powder. Use the garlic powder, just throw it in there. A large egg, three slices of bread, although I will tell you that I actually don't do that. I just um, grab like a cup of breadcrumbs and um, just use plain breadcrumbs because it's just uh, it's just easier to do that. And sometimes you add a little bit more than a cup of breadcrumbs. It's when, because the breadcrumbs and the egg help bind the meat together into the loaf shape. So you need to make sure that it is, you don't want it too dried out or the point where like you're going to, it's the, the, the bread's going to soak up every bit of moisture and it's going to be a very, very dry meatloaf, but you don't want it so sopping wet that the, the loaf does not form when you put it on the pan. It's just like a meat glop. So you need to find that balance with the breadcrumbs and stuff. A small onion, which you dice up. I am notoriously terrible at dicing onions. Um, my father for years has used Lipton's French onion soup. The, it comes like in a packet and you it's like the, you can shake the packet up and you like throw it in water and I think you make French onion soup about it. It's like dehydrated French onion soup. My only piece of advice, it's, it actually makes it taste really good. Uh, therefore, you don't need the onion. The other thing, my other piece of advice with that, though, if you do go that route, do not put salt in there. The French onion soup is incredibly salty, so you don't need any salt with it if you're using the French onion soup. Dice the onion up nicely or grate it on a grater or something like that. You're also going to need ketchup because what, you know, some people put tomato sauce on top of it. I tend to like ketchup, and what you do is you, you form it into a loaf, and I drizzle ketchup on it. Sometimes Brett's like, can I have football meatloaf so I make the ketchup drizzle look like the the stitching on a football my mother-in-law will whip up some tomato sauce and just put the tomato sauce on top of it that tastes fine as well the seasonings are something you can play with which is what i really really like about the dish like i said it's its versatility some people do go like a barbecue route some people put a little heat to it and add some hot sauce like i said i like the savory aspect of it i'm not looking for spicy i'm not looking for sweet so that's why i go with the ketchup and that's why i just go with the onions and the and the um and sometimes actually well, what i'll add is um herbs de provence because amanda has a nice uh grinder of those and it kind of is around the same seasonings you're getting and it adds a, just a little bit of a of a pep to it that, that I really like. You're going to cook it for about an hour and a quarter in a 350 degree oven. Your internal temperature of the meat should be about 160 degrees. Let it sit for a few minutes um, before you cut it. Just you know, take it out of the um, take it out of the pan or whatever you're using. Some people use uh, like put it in an actual loaf pan, like you'd make banana bread in. I just tend to throw some foil on a baking sheet, spray the baking, spray it down with a uh, cooking spray, and form the loaf on there. And that way, I just kind of pick it up with two spatulas and put it on a platter and and slice. How big? You want the slices when you slice it is up to you. Um, I try to you know, give a medium sort of, of slice there. But the point is, it's like, you know, it's it's a one, it's basically like a one bowl dish that you then transfer plain. You, and your hands are going to get dirty and they're going to get squished. You're going to get squished in the meat, but it's kind of fun. It's like kneading bread. You know, you can really just get in there and, and do 
and and really 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 put this together and it you know it feels good on some level to do that right so yeah and, and you serve it um i'll do whatever's available i love it with mashed potatoes on the side french fries on the side i've had it with macaroni and cheese on the side for for green i'll do broccoli peas you know it's honestly like i've i try to think about what sides i've had and i think mashed potatoes is the most labor-intensive side dish for meatloaf uh to be honest like i said it's an everyday household like table staple it's like here's like the (laughs) the frozen peas in the microwave and you know whatever is easy whatever is there don't overdo it and don't try to dress it up too much um you know put some put the ketchup bottle on the table and and just enjoy yourself some people make a nice beef gravy with it which also tastes really good so if you want to do that go go right ahead and do that um i haven't had that served that way in years but um you know it, it what's cool is that there's no one way to do it so, um, so, and that, that's what I like about the dish so much. You can get very, very creative. Now, one tip um, that, that I think I can recommend, uh, and this comes from my father, actually. Uh, there's actually, what he will do is, instead of making one meatloaf when he makes meatloaf, uh, because very often, you know, you think of the meatloaf put on the, put on the pan, big, big meatloaf. It, it literally is the size of football. And you're like, okay, this is a, big mother and you just carve off a nice chunk um, like with a, like a serrated knife or even like a big steak knife or something and you put it on a plate what he'll do is actually uh, because he knows one of the things that we liked to do when we were kids was have meatloaf sandwiches the next day so he would make two he would take the two pounds of ground beef and basically break it up do like make two smaller sized meatloaves and one of them would be set aside and the other one we would eat and um that can really work because what that does is create kind of a smaller size slice that will fit on the bread nicely and that's something i definitely wanted to talk about when i was planning this podcast because as much as i love meatloaf it's the meatloaf sandwich that really has come to define meatloaf in my mind uh, for the last 25 years or so. Because there's there's really an art to making a meatloaf sandwich. This is where I am going to kind of come off as authoritarian on the topic, whereas with making the actual meatloaf itself, I've been like, yeah, well, you know, you do what you want to do. And I just kind of give you a basic recipe to start with. Now, a cold meatloaf sandwich is one of the absolute best things to have for lunch. Just it is it is just amazing and it's not very hard to make of course, but it can, it can be very easy to overdo. I'm a big fan of constructing sandwiches uh, so that the sandwich ingredients do not overwhelm the bread. Um, this isn't you know, this isn't a pulled pork sandwich. This isn't chicken salad. This is not a sloppy joe. Those sandwiches, they're loose. They're, they've got creamy ingredients like mayonnaise or barbecue sauce or whatever. You expect some of the ingredients to fall out of the sandwich. Meatloaf is compact. It's constructed. You, you don't want the bread to be kind of lost in everything, which is why I totally understand why my father used to make a smaller loaf when we were kids because when you sliced that, it was just about the size of a slice of bread. Now, if you've made a big loaf and you want to make sandwiches out of that, what I recommend is cutting a nice thin slice, 
you know, not too thin, but don't not not a big thick slice. Nice thin slice, and then cut it in half and put the two halves of the thin slice on top of one another between two pieces of white bread. And yes, I know white bread is not in vogue now. People buy like, you know, multi-grain bread with all sorts of fruits, nuts, buried flax seed, you know, stuff that's going to make you crap, you know, on a regular schedule in it. People might want to use rolls for this. It's just me having been raised as a kid on Wonder Bread and like just two pieces of classic white Wonder Bread, the meatloaf between it, some ketchup on top, it's absolutely perfect. You do not need to mess with it. The size of the slice actually matters too. It shouldn't. And you might be asking yourself, why does it matter? I mean, like, why not just go for like a big, huge meatloaf slice because I don't know, America? Um, well, if the meat's too much, you're putting too much pressure on your thumbs. So basically you squish the bread and, and you don't want that. It's simple physics. Um, because like I said, the bread's important. The bread holds it, but it, it doesn't, you, you get this kind of like the squishy, 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 like, yeah, you, know, you ever have like a peanut butter and jelly and the bread has gotten like really, really squished and the jelly kind of soaked through and it's almost like you're eating jelly bread. Yeah. You don't, you don't want that. You don't, you want the bread to have maintain some sort of, um, integrity there. So don't overwhelm the bread with the meat and the ketchup. Just get just enough so that if, if you were to actually measure it out, the proportion of bread to meat is about 50, 50. It, it's just amazing for lunch. If you can do it right out of the fridge, cold, that's always preferable. I would recommend, see nowadays when you bring your lunch into work, you can put it like I use like a nice little thermal pack with an ice pack in it so I can keep my lunch cold in the classroom. When I was in junior high and high school though, I had a locker and I would brown bag it and my sister and I became a bit notorious with the meatloaf sandwiches because they taste so good. But when they've been sitting in a locker for six periods and then you go to lunch and they still taste fine but onions <sighs> onions do not smell particularly great or subtle when they've been sitting in a locker for six periods and I remember it would be wrapped in foil in the brown bag and you take it out and like it would just it would you see, I'd wafted and like, you know, here's the smell, but it would just kind of consume the air around it. And people would be like, Oh God, but God damn, it was so good. My dad would, my dad would like make the meatloaf because he, and he would be like making us lunches the next day. And we're, um, the sandwiches the next day. And, and there were several times, several different sandwiches he would make that like, he was like, yeah, I got something really cool for lunch. Like, um, sometimes he would make bread, breaded chicken cutlets, for dinner and save some of those and put them on a roll or something for our lunch or he'd buy like some really good like semolina bread or rolls or something and just big freaking sandwich for lunch and stuff and and um and the meatloaf sandwich like when we had those that was like that was a big deal for for nancy and i because that was that was just you know you're not <laughs> you're not getting near this and we were like it i mean i remember one time um i went skiing with them up at uh, it was like Hunter Mountain or something up in up in New York, and they were renting a ski cabin at the time. And I was still living in DC. It was about two thousand one, two thousand two, and uh, this was right around Christmas. And what I did was I drove up to for Christmas. It was Christmas holiday because we went up for a couple of days after Christmas, and then I drove back down uh, to DC from upstate New York. And I took you know the throughway down to like was it 
278 or 78 in the Poconos and then hit 81 and took it 81 all the way down to 70 and then 270 and then and we had meatloaf the last night there and I remember being on the um being on I-81 in, I-81 in Pennsylvania and it was just about midday and I was starving and here I am driving this my Honda Civic and <laughs> I had stopped off at a rest stop just to get like a coke and I'm driving the Honda Civic eating a meatloaf sandwich drinking a coke um, as I'm driving back to DC and it was, it's just things like that is what I think of when I think of meatloaf and, uh, which is why I wanted to cover it because it's just, it's, it's such a, I mean, it shows up on TV shows. It shows up in movies, uh, a Christmas story. That's, that's what they're eating. Meatloaf and mashed potatoes. That's what they're eating in the scene where the, where the brother, um, is mommy's little piggy. <laughs> show me how the piggies eat and i i think it makes its way into just about every sitcom every once in a while because it's just it's always been there and you can dress it up you can dress it down you can do whatever you want with it but it's still meatloaf and that's what makes it so great so thank you for listening to the april 1st 2015 episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. I'll be back in about a week with my next piece of the DC Comics, uh, 80 Years of DC Comics series, which will cover the Legends of the DC Universe issue uh, that features the new Teen Titans. And then in a couple of weeks uh, after that, I will be back with episode 48, which features Todd Liebenau from the Forgotten Filmcast and I talking about one of the great, great, great 80s teen movies Fast Times are in Mont High so until then thanks for listening and take care you have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit all music clips and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it no infringement is intended images clips show notes and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at pop culture affidavit which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.